Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back to another Andy-centric episode because I accidentally deleted my notes this morning. Good thing I have mine. Yeah, otherwise... I'm like that kid in class that works ahead and ends up saving everybody else on the class project, I feel. Which I was not that kid in school, so I don't know how I, I turned into say, that you totally kid. could have been that kid in school. Like, I would have expected that of you. I don't know why. I was not... I should have been. I was not. I was the kid that like copied off that kid. I swear. I was the kid that like finished everything in the last five minutes of study hall. Like right before the class where we had the group project done. Same. Same here. Anyway, today, heading back to my home state of Iowa. And since it's my home state, I've always had kind of a fascination with some of the state's most infamous cases, as you know. Whether it's the unsolved murders of Elizabeth Collins and Lyric Cook, which was a three-part case that we covered last season that took place back in 2012 and shook my hometown area to its very core, or the case of Johnny Gosh, a 12-year-old paper boy who was kidnapped in the Des Moines, Iowa area in the early 80s, never to be seen again, although... His mother would beg to differ on that one, as you may remember. That was a case we also covered. And even the episode we did back in season one of the disappearance and likely murder of the Iowa television anchor Jody Husentrout, all of them have one thing in common. The killer or killers are still at large. Well, today, Emily, we're going to look at another brutal murder that took place in Iowa and drew national headlines when it occurred in the mid-1970s, becoming one of the worst mass killings in the state's history. But unlike the other cases I just mentioned, where the killer or killers have yet to be apprehended, this one yielded an arrest and conviction of someone who, on the surface, would seem the most unlikely suspect imaginable. On the night of October 31st, 1975, Leslie and Georgine Mark, both 25 years old, had just settled down after a fun-filled day of Halloween festivities with their children, five-year-old Julie and one-and-a-half-year-old Jeff. They even had a picture taken of the kids that night, who both appeared to presumably be in high spirits, I'm guessing because of maybe a sugar high or something like that. I don't know about you, but for me, as a kid getting all the candy... On Halloween, it felt like I won the lottery. Yes. Yes. I wanted to like compete with my friends. Even though we were all going trick-or-treating together, I still wanted to have more candy somehow. Yeah, me too. Even if it was like that candy corn candy. I didn't care as long as it was more. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff wasn't even two years old yet, but I'm sure his options were limited on the candy front. But still, by all accounts, the whole family had a great day. And they had a great life. Leslie also known as Les, had recently inherited a beautiful farm from his parents just a few miles west of the town of Cedar Falls, a fast-growing, close-knit town home to the newly established University of Northern Iowa. But in just a few short hours, the entire family's world would come to an abrupt end as each of them was murdered in cold blood. Recently, I was able to read in engrossing in-depth book on the Marx murders. It was called Brother's Blood, a Heartland Cain and Abel story. It was written 
by a local author and Cedar Falls native, Scott Kowelty. After finishing, I actually reached out to Scott and asked him to be on the podcast. And lo and behold, he said yes. I love it when people say yes. Yeah. So he's going to be on with us. He grew up and went to school with Jerry Mark, the convicted killer, and has a great insight into the motivation of Jerry and why exactly this married 32-year-old would travel halfway across the country to commit this heinous act on his brother's family. This is the story of the Marks family murders. So as the book title hints, this is really the story of one brother's jealousy towards the other, hence the title Brother's Blood. To provide a little background, Scott Coelty is an accomplished author and retired teacher from the University of Northern Iowa. I first asked him what prompted him to write his book Brother's Blood. And then Brother's Blood, which I really wanted to get involved with because I knew Jerry Mark in high school. Uh, he was a year ahead of me, graduated in 60, I graduated in 61, and we weren't exactly friends, but we were in the same groups. He was a vocal guy. <laughs> he sang a lot, and so did I in various vocal groups, and I just sort of knew him, and he was really an accomplished person. He was vice president of a senior class, smart, funny, well-liked, one of those guys that everybody just thought loud, most likely to succeed, and in fact, that was the title of one of the History Channel's uh, episodes on the Jerry Mark murders, most likely to succeed a whole series of episodes on people that you would never guess in a million years they would ever be involved in crime. So when Jerry Mark was arrested and eventually convicted, the whole, uh, actually the whole state, but certainly my area where everybody knew him, we're, we were all in shock. It just can't be. There's no way Jerry Mark could have done that. Yeah. That was the feeling. And that was used as kind of his defense in a way that he was just such a great guy, he couldn't possibly have done this. But then when you started looking at the evidence, which I did because I was just so curious, I just realized he actually did do it. There was just no question. Lied and lied and lied. Evidently, he had a kind of sociopathic personality and was able to lie without compunction. And they convicted him. Uh, the jury didn't deliberate very long. He's been in prison ever since. Murders were in 1975. He was convicted in 1976. Uh, four life, four consecutive life sentences. So that's kind of a brief summary, and I know the audio is not the greatest on that cut, but just kind of a brief summary of why he wrote the book and what ended up happening to Jerry Mark. And as he mentioned, there have been numerous documentaries on the History Channel and other places about this murder, and. You know, it was in Scott's own backyard. And as he said, he knew Jerry growing up. Not well. They weren't great friends, but they knew each other. And yeah. the guy never seemed like the type to kill someone. Well, and I feel like, I mean, very rarely do you really come across someone or know somebody in your life that you think, yeah, that guy's going to kill someone someday. Or, yeah, that girl's going to, like, murder someone someday. 
Yeah, you can't like necessarily see it in their eyes or anything. Yeah. The only I mean, time like, I've ever seen that is when my cat is looking out the window at a bird. <laughs> yeah. I know that she wants to like kill it. Yeah, it's just like a very animalistic thing. And I mean, thankfully, nobody that I know that I know of has ever killed anybody. So I would imagine that, you know, when you grow up with somebody or like you've known someone for a long time and then you figure out that, you know, they could have potentially committed this heinous crime. Like I'm I'm sure like he said, like he did some research on his own because like he didn't believe it. And then he was just kind of like, oh wow, you know, I guess I guess he did. I mean like I feel like I would do the same thing. Yeah. Especially what kind of person he was. And as you heard in the clip from Scott there, people in Cedar Falls and the surrounding area were just shocked that Jerry Mark, of all people, would have anything to do with these murders. But apparently, there had always been a little jealousy, at least on his end, towards his younger brother, Leslie. I, I think it had deep roots. So Jerry sort of tutored his brother in farming. He taught Les how to farm. So he was responsible for Lutz becoming a very good farmer. But he became, um, I think he was an idealist. He, he went off to the Peace Corps. He lived in Brazil for a while as a member of the Peace Corps. He worked in Des Moines for the Legal Aid Society. He wanted to make the world a better place. And he became kind of an abstract philosophical thinker. And he thought his brother was just sort of an ordinary farmer. And his father preferred his brother taking over the family business, which was worth a lot of money. And just cut Jerry out because Jerry was not doing anything with farming. In fact, when, when all of a sudden done, Jerry wasn't doing much of anything. He went to California, lived in a, a trailer park, uh, what do they call it? Not RV camper site? I don't know. Anyway, he, he went there and was not really engaged in anything but odd jobs. And his father thought him kind of a failure and a wastrel, not doing much. And so when Jerry was told his brother was moving into the family home, a family home place, he was furious. In fact, there's a famous quote that I've quoted several times that really points at Jerry's famous in the sense that I use it. <laughs> that Jerry really hated his father for, for turning the family farm over to his brother and not including him in the clear inheritance. And he said, old man, when you die, I'm going to come back and kiss on your grave. And that shocks everybody when they think about it because at the time his father was dying of cancer and was no, really in no shape to defend himself. So Jerry was just uh, was just angry at everybody in the family, mostly his father, especially his brother, for willing to, his willingness to take over the farm and not include uh, him, Jerry, in the inheritance. So a little backstory on Jerry there. And, you know, he was a lawyer. He was in the Peace Corps, kind of f- failed in some of his own endeavors and wasn't doing very well in life, which is why... His father, who was dying, probably made the right decision to give the farm to his younger brother who had stuck around and knew the farm, knew the ins and outs of it. And as Scott mentioned, Jerry was absolutely furious at the time and said that he was going to piss on his dad's grave when he died. Yeah, yikes. Right. That's some That's some anger yeah. right there, if you ask me. Well, and some foreshadowing of, you know, what was to come here. And after the murders took place, investigators found some evidence that 
while it was circumstantial, didn't look good for Jerry Mark. Now, Jerry had been living in Berkeley, California, and based on some of the purchases he made leading up to the murders, it was pretty clear to the prosecution that he had been planning on making the road trip to Iowa to kill his brother and his brother's family for about a month on October 3rd, 1975, when Jerry purchased a white helmet and a used 450cc Honda motorcycle somewhere near his residence. And this motorcycle was dark brown, had a windshield, leg protectors, all that stuff on it. Also, he owned an Iowa registered 100cc Honda motorcycle. Now, at some time before November 1st, 1975, when the murders were committed, he removed the Iowa license plate from his 100cc Honda and put it on the new Honda motorcycle that he bought. Kind of sus a little bit. On October 20th, he purchased one box of 50 38 caliber Winchester Western long Colt bullets manufactured in 1975. He used his Iowa driver's license for his identification and he purchased these in California. He also had a pistol that he had previously bought that was capable of firing these bullets, the same bullets that were found in all four of the victims. Also on October 28th, he bought a riding suit and a pair of motorcycle gloves from a Honda dealership in Berkeley, California. The reason I bring all of this up is because it shows planning and premeditation, especially the bullets. It's believed that the killings of the Marx family took place between 1 and 3 o'clock in the morning on November 1st, 1975. And I got this information from Murderpedia website. Jerry had left his residence in California on October 29th on that 450cc Honda motorcycle that he had previously just bought. He went through Lovelock, Nevada on Interstate 80. He then proceeded on Interstate 80 through Cheyenne, Wyoming, through Chappelle, Nebraska. And so he's not too far away at this point. He continued going east to Ackley, Iowa, which is just outside of Cedar Falls. He stopped at a holiday gas station Halloween night at approximately 8 p.m. Was he just like trying to like pull it off like his uh, his Halloween costume was a bike rider or something? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not the worst Halloween costume that I've seen before. It's not even close to the best. So he's like, he's about 35 miles from Leslie Mark's farm, which is just west of Cedar Falls. He left the gas station. Wait, 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 hold on. Back up. What did you say? I was looking at a map because I wanted to know where Cedar Falls was because I kept thinking Cedar Rapids and I'm like, that's not right. Yeah. Cedar Falls is right next to my hometown of Waterloo. Yeah. Anyway, so after he left Ackley, he... It is said that he got to the Mark home in the early hours of November 1st, where he cut the wires to their telephone box, which was just across the road from the farmhouse. 
So he like really had a plan if he's going so far as to cut the wires. Yeah. What wasn't in his plan was he apparently dropped two of his 38 caliber bullets on the ground, which they later found right around that area. We just have him like loosely hanging out in his pocket or something. Apparently he did. Pliers to cut the wires. (laughs) He probably had some extra bullets in his pocket and that's where he kept his tools. Yeah, you're right. So then he walked up the driveway to the home. He goes past the camper, uh, which is a place where Leslie sometimes slept after he was doing his farm work. Was that like a ways away from the main house then? It was on the way to the house. And he then gets to the house and apparently he had found the key. I think he knew where it was, you know, since it was the family farmhouse. Um, Mm -hmm. It was hung by the back door and entered the house. Then at some points, he went into the basement. That's where he cut the power. And remember, this is one o'clock in the morning, so they probably don't know that the power's been cut. They're all presumably sleeping. Yeah. So he cuts the power. And while he was down there, he smoked two Marlboro cigarettes, which they found the butts of later. It was then that Jerry went to Leslie and Georgine's bedroom, which was on the main floor of the house, where he shot each of them, Leslie five times, four times in the head, and once in the stomach, and Georgine four times, twice in the head, once in the back, with another shot that kind of just grazed her skin. Did she like hear the shots and try and get up and run? Who knows? Because again, Jerry's the only person there. Nobody else survived. So I, I think that probably. Well, where was her body found? Was that on she, the bed? She was on the bed still. So I think it was so quick. Maybe she had been sleeping on her back or something yeah. or on her, on her stomach, I would say. Mm-hmm. After the murder of Georgine and Leslie. It is said that Jerry then made his way upstairs to Julie Mark's bedroom. Julie Mark was the five-year-old girl. He fatally shot Julie twice, once through the heart and once through her right eye while in her room. What? A fucking monster. Even worse than... I don't know why this makes it worse, but they also found a cigarette butt in her room and it is presumed that after he murdered her he smoked another cigarette it's just i don't i don't know why that gets to me but just like he's in there with her dead body just smoking a cigarette i don't know it's weird and gross and i don't like it 
He also went to Jeffrey's bedroom, who wasn't even two years old yet, and shot the infant two times, once in the left chest and once above the right eye, instantly killing him as well. You hate to hear about kids, but just from the sound of it, it sounded like they probably died instantly, which is, I think, the only good thing about it because they didn't lay there and, like, suffer, but, like, they shouldn't have been murdered in the first place. None of them should have. But it's like, when you're going to go, when you're going to go and kill babies, that's just... Another level. Yeah, I mean, and they were so little, like, did like do we find out like why he wanted to kill the entire family and not like just his brother? Not really, other than the fact that I mean we're gonna get He's into just a sick and twisted fuck. Yeah, we're gonna get into what his actual motive was coming up, even though again he still proclaims his in- innocence, even though he's been convicted. Yeah, um, okay, sure. sure, sure. He then. He then left the farm and he was actually spotted in Williams, Iowa, which is about 65, 70 miles west of the Mark farmhouse. And that was around 5 a.m. on November 1st. He was then spotted in a few other areas until he got back to California as well. It was Jerry and Leslie's own mother, Dorothy, who found the family dead in their home the very next morning at dawn. Mm -mm. I think she was coming over to the farm to just do the daily farm chores and whatnot when she found all of them dead. In the immediate aftermath, of course, people from the town came over to give her casseroles and pies like one does when something like that happens and shared in her grief. But Soon after that, neighbors began telling her about the rumors that her own son, Jerry, was the main suspect in the case. Now, you might be wondering, as I was, what connected the dots for them to think that Jerry, who lived in California, had committed this horrible crime? Well, once investigators found that Jerry had been on a motorcycle trip during that very time period, they honed in and then soon made the arrest. Now, Jerry would plead not guilty to the murders. And as I mentioned, 50 years later, nearly 50 years later, he still maintains his innocence. But no one was exactly persuaded by the lackluster alibi he had. Well, he had he had a kind of lame series of excuses. I talked to him, I interviewed him in Fort Madison uh, about his alibi. His basic alibi was that he I didn't want anybody to know he had picked up a young woman, and he turned around somewhere in Nebraska and started riding back to, uh, riding back to California on his Honda 450 and realized that he was then being tracked for the murders and uh, sort of came in and tried to try to tell people that he met this woman and on the motorcycle she she left and went away and he didn't want anybody to know where he was so he stopped he's, he's lies where the phone calls were coming from on the trip um really just he, he really just uh, did did that to confuse the law his actual phone calls were from 
various phones right along the way, right into Cedar Falls, right outside of Cedar Falls, and I uh, can't remember the name of the town, I don't, uh, slightly out of western Iowa. Uh, and so he, that night, he rode back, he hid in a ditch outside the house, and then uh, uh, unloaded his motorcycle, got, got the revolver out of the back of the motorcycle, which he brought from California, 38 long Colt revolver, and snuck into the house in the middle of the night, Halloween night, 1975, committed the murders, went back out, climbed on the motorcycle and rode off, thinking he'd gotten by with it. Uh, really incredibly arrogant personality, thinking no one would notice. Uh, but he lied about the phone calls, lied about the long coat with all the bullets which he bought, and then they discovered that he bought it. Actually signed his name for it out in Paso Robles, California, at a sporting goods store, signed Jerry Mark for these odd caliber bullets. You know, one, more, one more of the lies he got into. So... Wow. A whole series of lies led him in and out of that crime, and they caught him in those series of lies, and he couldn't refute them. The alibi was just too flimsy. Yeah, that was his alibi, that, oh, no, I was just on this long road trip to pick up this girl and kind of have an affair with this girl. He was married. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Not exactly the best excuse. No. To give. You can go pick up some chick on your motorcycle in the middle of winter. Right. Buddy. Yeah. And they didn't fall for it either. Uh, Jerry was pretty quickly convicted of all four murders. Sentenced to life in prison the very next year in 1976. Um, In the book, Scott describes the case as not a whodunit but rather a why done it. And it all can be traced back to Jerry's jealousy over not getting the family farm for himself. Right. But like, didn't you say that like, even when he was young, he didn't like do anything with the farm, but his brother did. Right. So yeah. why do you think you're entitled to a farm that you didn't put any work into? Right. Buddy. Read the room. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like I say, that nobody could quite believe that he, he was capable of doing these horrendous crimes, killing his brother and his brother's wife and their two small children in their beds with a fairly a thirty-eight caliber long Colt uh, revolver and just, just seemed to have no, uh, no hesitation. There were five shots to the brother, four or five shots to the wife, and two shots each execution style to the little kids of uh, five and one in their beds. It was really just a horrendous crime. And so the question is not so much who did it because the evidence was so clearly pointed to him, but why in the world would he uh, proceed to, uh, to uh, actually do something that people have considered one of the worst crimes in the history of the state of Iowa? It's yeah. one of those crimes that no one can quite believe even now. So I explored why, and I went into the family dynamics of the Mark family, the struggles Jerry had with his father, the jealousy of his brothers taking over the farm, that kind of thing. It was a family squabble, basically, that turned into murders. A small family squabble that all families have, but certainly all families don't have it end like this. And he goes into great detail in the book about Jerry's jealousy, about not getting the family farm, about some things in his own life that didn't play out the way he had planned and why 
he had this, you know, hatred in his heart for everybody in his family. And as I was researching this case, I found that there's still a number of people who either claim that they believe that Jerry Mark is innocent or that there just wasn't enough concrete evidence to convict the guy. I mean, like we heard before, most of this evidence is circumstantial. Right. Even though investigators could pinpoint his travels from California to Iowa and back again, there is very little evidence of him actually committing the crime itself. One piece of evidence was the cigarette butts that I told you about that investigators found at the scene of the crime and DNA was in its infancy around the time of the crime, but investigators did link the DNA found on the cigarettes to Jerry Mark. However, years later, from what I understand, the Iowa State Crime Lab reported new results, which actually may have excluded Jerry's DNA from the cigarettes. And that was really the only credible evidence that the state had to put him in the farmhouse the night of the murder. I asked Scott about why he thinks there's still a sizable group of people who maintain Jerry Mark's innocence. Was it because of the lack of concrete evidence or maybe because Jerry seemed like an unlikely murderer? And we've seen with previous killers, he knew how to turn on the charm. Well, I start with that. He certainly is an unlikely murderer. He doesn't fit the profile on any level. I mean, a lawyer and a Peace Corps volunteer and a young idealist. On the other hand, not on the other hand, he's also an extremely charming, wonderful, funny, and convincing liar. He lies with a straight face, and he does it in a way that makes you convinced. He couldn't have done that. He's telling me the truth right now. Um, he told me these things in the interview that I checked out later were just flat-out lies. He lied to my face. And at that point, I realized Jerry is really an incorrigible sociopath mm. who knows how to lie and lies charmingly. He can convince anybody that he didn't do it once you talk to him a while uh, until you look at the evidence. Again, the evidence is just so overwhelming, points so directly in his direction. You have to realize that you're just being lied to. And he certainly wouldn't be the only murderer that we've talked about that is a charmer, that is able to deceive people i mean for me ted bundy comes to lot comes to mind he was a pretty good charmer himself that's exactly who uh, i thought about too because i mean there was a lot of people who didn't believe that he did it there's there's people who don't believe there's people who don't believe chris watts killed his wife and two children like which how Exactly. But I mean, like, I just wonder, okay, so like he said, well, and okay, so like his quote unquote alibi was that he was going to Iowa to like meet up with some chick, right? Mm-hmm. Did they ever find and talk to the chick? No, the, okay. there was, there was no chick. I mean, there, right. there was, yeah. But so, that was his only explanation for being in Iowa, which was debunked total bullshit I mean, did they find did they find like shell casings or anything like in yeah i mean they found the house? his yeah they found his 38 caliber 
bullets. They found the purchase that he made for the bullets. All of that. Yeah, but I mean, like at the crime scene, did he leave those behind? Yeah, and like I said, they even found some outside of the of the house too. And they did do forensics on the bullets later as well. Prosecutors used a technique that compared bullet lead at the scene to lead bullets purchased by Jerry Mark and confirmed that it was the same bullets. I will say that... Some people say this process is a little out of date and flawed at this time. Now, Jerry Mark and his defense team have repeatedly asked for the bullets to be retested in a more updated way. But as of the time of this recording, they have yet to do that. Yeah. Well, like the cigarette thing, did his brother, what was his brother's name again? Leslie? Leslie, yeah. Did he smoke? That I don't know of. That's a good question. And I think part of it is the DNA was so bad at the time. Yeah. And once they did whatever you do with DNA years later, maybe it lost whatever, you know, pertinence it had. Does that does that make sense to you? I'm trying to say yeah, with that. Well, like my my very minimal understanding of DNA is like you need like you need a certain amount to get like a good match off of it but like if it's not stored properly that can that right. can damage it too so like yeah. we don't know if it was stored properly or anything but i'm just over here trying to like spitball like you know for the for the disbelievers out there like his alibi was more or less debunked because they never found any proof of this woman's existence that he went to go see and from the sound of it, did he ever come up with any sort of alternative explanation for being there? No. Yeah. See, he never so. did. And I get that there's no hard evidence that links him to the house that night. But, you know, as we mentioned. Well, he and was, did Leslie have any other enemies? No. That we know of? Every, everybody in town loved the guy. I mean, they were just that quintessential iowa family that yeah. everybody gets along with so like if it wasn't the brother what's your alternative explanation a stranger right nothing was well, taken that we know of like nothing significant was taken from the property right so right. it wasn't a robbery gone bad nope. and even if it was a robbery why are you gonna go upstairs and kill a baby yeah two babies it doesn't make any and sense and all the lies. That's what I can't get past in this case. Just all of the lies he told. Yeah. You know, he There's he lied too. about the he lied about the route he took. He lied about the purchase of by the way, the bullets, the 38 caliber bullets, very rare bullets too. So and that, I think that's pertinent because these bullets you can't just find anywhere. He just, he lied about so much. And in fact, he said himself when he was in prison, here's why I got convicted. I lied to because the cops. I, <laughs> I lied to the cops and I bought the bullets. Again, he was convicted uh, for life sentences, still in Iowa prison to this day. I believe he is 83 years old now. 
And we do want to give a big, big thank you to Scott Coelty for being on the podcast with us. Scott put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into his book, Blood Brothers. And it was the first thing I thought of when I realized I was going to start researching this case because I had heard so many great things about it. And if you're interested in the book... Scott mentioned to me that um, you can buy it, especially if you're around Iowa, they're, you know, in most bookstores, Barnes and Noble, things like that. I got it off Amazon. Great read. Uh, only took me a couple days to read it. It is uh, about uh, 200 pages. It is Scott Coelty, Brothers Blood, uh, Heartland, Cain and Abel. So there we go. The story of the Marks family murders. Another one in the books. Wild. Yeah. And he's been in prison for what, like 40, 30, some 40 years? Uh, 40, now? 45 years or so, yeah. You're clearly not getting out. Mm hmm. Right? So yeah, why you would not think. Just tell the truth, dude. Yeah. Very rarely does that happen. I we, know, we, but like, why? Like, you know what? That is something I actually I would be, um, I'm working on a summer sode that I hope we can do at some point about uh, remorse that killers have had because it's so rare. And maybe we'll tie that in. I'll look up different cases where after decades and decades, they did finally admit that they did it. You know, it's, it doesn't happen very often, but I'm sure there's a few instances of it. Yeah. There's gotta be, I would think so. Like, how do you, I don't know. And maybe just because like we're good people. But like yeah. I don't I don't know how you could just like live with that and like lie yeah. about it for decades. Especially, you know, so so many of these people once they get to prison, all of a sudden they become God-fearing people and they're all about Jesus and the Lord and everything. Um and you would think that maybe once they kind of turn to God, then they would decide, well, thou shalt not lie, you know, but most of them don't. Don't admit to it. But anyway, if you have any theories as to what you think may have happened in this case, maybe you're somebody who thinks that he shouldn't have been convicted. Maybe not because you think he didn't do it, but just because there wasn't enough evidence to convict him on it. Let us know in our socials yeah come uh, hang out with us on instagram unnatural the podcast facebook unnatural a true crime podcast you can even send us a gmail to unnatural the podcast at gmail.com um, also consider supporting us and the podcast on our patreon page that is patreon.com slash unnatural the pod and if you want to support us for free which you can do super easily be sure to rate subscribe follow and share us with your friends we'll talk to you next week yeah when hopefully when i get my redoes shit. her notes yeah which at this point, I am not going to redo my notes on the case that I was working on because I'm just upset and I'm going to do a different one because I don't want to reread yeah. anything. So it'll be a surprise to all of us what we cover. Actually, I do know what I want to cover next week because it's like happening right now. Ooh. And I'm not telling Ted you. 
Ted Kaczynski, Unabomber. Did you see that he died? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, he just died. I just watched a really, really good documentary on Netflix about him. Just because I, I had to remind myself of, I knew what he had done, but there were a lot of things I forgot. I forgot that when he was in college, he was he signed up for like these government experiment, experiments and stuff. And they like shocked the hell out of him and demeaned him for like two years straight. And a lot of people think that that's why he turned into what he turned into. And I, I also forgot that, you know what his IQ was? 187. Yeah. That is far and away. Like genius level, I think is like 150. Like 187. Crazy guy though. I, I forgot how many different people that he sent those packages to. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of people. And it was... He started in 1978 and he wasn't caught until the 90s, mm-hmm. like 95 or something. So, yeah, did it for a long time. Interesting case. Okay, so that's not the one you're doing. No. Hmm. But I would like to. Yeah, I think maybe we should do that one at some point. Well, we'll just have to wait and see when we, we come back next week. Yeah. But in the meantime, be sure you make good choices. And don't get got. on her stomach I would say Mm -hmm. which I don't know how people do that but I think you told me once you sleep on your stomach yeah that's so weird do you sleep on your back I sleep on my side actually I I recently read that um, sleeping in the fetal position is the most common way for adults to sleep I don't sleep in the fetal position I just like him on my side but stomach, stomach was by far. I was gonna mention this to you actually because I, I thought of you when you when I read that because you're the only person I know that says they sleep on their stomach and it was by far like the lowest percentage. <laughs> I because I've tried like sometimes I've woken up on my stomach, but I don't think I've ever been able to fall asleep on my stomach. Yeah, I'm like a, a side and stomach sleeper but like like i sleep like like on my like with like my hands kind of like this like under my pillow though yeah i'll do that like this under my pillow and then i have like the one leg up it's funny when i'm like super relaxed and like i don't have to be up early the next day or something i can fall asleep like anyway really but then if i have to wake up early the next morning and i'm like on a tight schedule then i start like analyzing exactly how I should be laying in order to fall asleep. And it usually bites me in the ass. You know what I mean? Because you're like, okay, I got to get to sleep. I got to get to sleep. And then like, okay, I'm going to put my hand right here. Oh no, my leg shouldn't be, it, sh- it shouldn't be crunched. It should be uh, spread out. You know what I mean? Do you ever do that? Or is that just me? 
Oh. Okay. Well, now you have a little insight in my weirdness. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, I don't understand how people just like lay down flat on their back, close their eyes, and fall asleep. Like, that's 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 criminal. Yeah, Shit. I can't that's do that. That's not. That's that's not. That's, that's a, not right. One would say it's unnatural. It is. 